Hello, hello, and welcome to Hometown Daily, the new show powered by hometown.com. Today is February 21st, 2024. It's season three, episode 52. Today, we declare the future is fungal. <laughs> Italian toothpaste. Mysterious sci-fi movie. Say cheese recall. Early diabetes test. Just the tip. Music labels are still suing the internet. Court blocks $1 billion copyright ruling. And AI copyright will doom us all. And the tiniest apartment in Manhattan. That and more. Hello, hello. I am Marwat. That is hometown.com. And up there is the visualizer for the sentient AI. You want to say hi? Good evening, hometown citizens. Um, I want to thank Dunkstar for giving a shout out. Uh, to their community, Dunkstar, D-U-N-C-S-T-A-R, over on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Dunkstar. Uh, and their uh, co-host, Timeless, is Timeless underscore EXE. Um, great community. Thank you for giving a shout out to the, your community and sending people over to mine. Really do appreciate it. Um, we have kind of different uh, communities, so... Uh, they, well, they're, they're a lot of fun and, uh, play, uh, computer games and talk about, uh, all kinds of things. Um, whereas we talk about news primarily, um, we also break up the show so that we have actually three different shows currently, and we're going to be adding two more. So hometown daily news show is like its title says a, a daily news show. Um, where we talk about a composite of everything that's over on hometown.com. But we also have Reality Hacker, which focuses on AR and VR, mixed reality, augmented reality, um, artificial intelligence, deep fakes, basically computer manipulation, um, and the continuity report, which talks about uh, streaming, TV, and movies. That's our focus for that one. And we're going to be launching two new ones this coming weekend. Wanted, which is a tech gadget show um, and technology today, which is a more focused uh, deeper into the discussion regarding technology show. Still 10 news articles, but um, all of them have their little niche areas and they're all going to become podcasts uh, in their own right. Three of which hometown daily news show continuity report and reality hacker are already available uh, as a podcast under the hometown uh, umbrella over on uh, apple podcasts and wherever you pick up your pods with your pod catcher uh, don't forget go over to youtube and all of that kind of stuff too okay enough of that let's get into the news and go from there Uh, the very first article for today is the future is fungal. New research finds that fungi that live in healthy plants are sensitive to climate change. The spruce, pine, fir, and other trees tower across the frigid swaths of land that span North America, Northern Europe, and Russia in a great ring around the world. Ring around the world? It's ring around the rosy kind of a thing? Um... These boreal forests constitute the largest land ecosystem and the northernmost forests on Earth. 
and apparently they are i don't have an ad blocker um so michaela mace kelly over at university of arizona put the article together and um they say nestled within the photosynthetic or light eating tissue of the boreal trees and within the bountiful cloud-like lichens and feathery mosses that carpet the ground between them are fungi these fungi are endophytes meaning that they live within plants often in a mutually beneficial arrangement uh, to be a plant is to live in a fungal world said betsy arnold a professor at the school of plant sciences at the College of Agriculture, Life and Environmental Sciences and the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology in the College of Science and a member of the Bio5 Institute, which I've not heard of. It's quite the business card. That is the name plaque runs into the other office. <laughs> uh, endophytic or endophytic uh, fungi are vital to the health of plants in ways that aren't yet totally understood but we do know from the endophytes in general is that they're very good at protecting plants against disease and helping plants be more resilient to environmental stressors like heat they've been part of an important revolution in our thinking about plants this is interesting because um i come from an era of science where i don't think this was actually discussed or taught that endophytic or fungi was integrated into the biomass of trees in such a way that it's protective and helps plants and defends against stressors like heat. Um, it doesn't ring a bell to me. So uh, obviously science has been advancing and doing uh, its sciencey thing, uh, you know, evolving our understanding of the world. So they say over a decade ago, Arnold and her team set out in a month long adventure deep into the wilderness in northeastern Canada to understand how the fungal species adapted across different microenvironments and how they might fare in future climate change. And I guess they found out that that's exactly what happens. They are reacting to um, basically changes in the planet's carbon and water cycles. So, and our work highlights that they are home to some of the most evolutionarily diverse fungal endophytes in the world, endophytes that are found nowhere else. So do you think this is like a leading indicator of what's happening? Well, I don't know if they actually refer to it as that, but let's find out. Cause I think, I mean, they're saying that they're flying out to places and grabbing samples. Arnold thinks that the special climate dependence of these fine, fungal endophytes reflects a process of co-evolution with their hosts or research and development as she puts it as uh, plants find the ideal endophyte partner and flourish despite the distinctive stresses that plants face in these harsh northern landscapes i think that they are basically documenting what's going on but they they don't necessarily know how it's going to impact um or be impacted by climate change. They just know that they're all over the place. And so studying the fungi uh, may return some type of understanding of the impact of climate change um, uh, across a, a swath of ecosystems. It says to document biodiversity in our changing world is essential research. The specimens we collected are deposited in herbaria. Um, I don't think that's a country and therefore have lasting value 
uh, to understand how species, their distributions, their genes, and their ecosystems they inhabit change over time. In turn, the best way for Arbaria to serve the scientific community is by being integrated with research labs and world-class universities. So it's almost like a pitch to try and set up a, a broader research foundation. Um, well, fungi are probably not a big draw, right? Somebody wants to study like large mammals or well-known trees or whatever it is. I don't know the, um, Egon from the Ghostbusters studied spores, molds, and fungus. So that is true. I don't know. You can be a Ghostbuster anytime you want to. All you have to do is go to a, uh, well, any university that does fundamental research and then pitch to get a grant. He was cool before it was trendy. That's right. Uh, who are you going to call? Um, apparently, wait, let's, let me scroll up. Are you going to call University of Arizona? And uh, maybe the, Betsy Arnold. Are you going to call Betsy Arnold? There you go. <laughs> Come and check out my fungi. Mm, I'm just going to move on. The next article is over in the Mobile Channel. This cult favorite Italian toothpaste tastes like a fancy cocktail. Don't tell my dentist, but I hate brushing my teeth. I think a lot of people hate brushing their teeth. They brush twice yeah, a day. I don't think anybody really strives to do it, right? They just need to do it. Yeah, uh, and you really do. I mean, if you talk to, well, if you talk to anybody in any field, they're the hammer and they all they see are nails. So, but when you go and talk to your doctor, uh, sorry, your dentist, they will tell you, you know, everything that, uh, makes you you basically is in your mouth or goes through your mouth and so your dental health is very very important now I don't know if you want to run around and tell your doctor that this fancy Italian toothpaste um, is actually a tastes like a fancy cocktail that's what this actually is titled this cult this cult fave Italian toothpaste tastes like a fancy cocktail so they say that they brush twice a day because oral hygiene is important, but they consider it a chore. Although they found a, to a toothbrush that makes the experience more tol tolerable, typical drugstore toothpaste still irritates their mouth. Maybe they're a big baby is what they basically claim, but the strong mint flavor makes their eyes water. Wow. That's uh, a strong reaction. Yes. I mean, that old school Listerine does that, but not even modern Listerine makes your eyes water. Huh. So they try to avoid unsolicited, uncontrollable crying. So finding a toothpaste that offered a milder flavor became a crucial step in fixing their brushing routine. Get children's toothpaste. It has like well, there you go, or flavor. any other flavor other than mint, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, and it's just as effective as the adult toothpaste for crying out loud. Otherwise, they wouldn't be selling it to children. Well, they don't sell it to children. Whatever. Anyway, the Vice. <laughs> Kids are lining up at the store to buy toothpaste. <laughs> In the playground, they're selling it, you know. <laughs> On the black market. <laughs> yes. On the playground, the bleacher market. Um, yeah, by the bathrooms. Nicoletta Cardi. 
uh, over at vice.com put the article together. They made the switch to Marvis toothpaste and it's subtly spicy ginger mint flavor tastes like La Dolce Vita. I'm sorry, spicy ginger mint. That does not sound refreshing. In fact, that sounds more eye-watering than mint. Yeah, particularly the spicy ginger part of it. Ginger. We're, I'm sorry, the dead silence is me trying to wrap my head around. Like, ginger, the stuff that you have on the side with sushi. Right, and some people don't like ginger flavor ginger, to begin yeah. with, so this is really odd. The only time I really like ginger, I don't even eat it with sushi, but I'd like gingerbread, maybe. And even then, if it's too strong, I don't even like that. Ginger is really harsh. I don't know. Let's see. So um, where do they t go from here? They weren't planning on shopping for fancy toothpaste, but when it, they became fed up with a tearing mid brush, they basically said no more crass. Looked for a cult fave called Marvis. Now, this website kind of sells you on the various products that they talk about. So there's jasmine mint toothpaste from Marvis, cinnamon mint toothpaste. That one might be actually really good, but then you end up just eating your toothpaste. Right, but it could still be really harsh. Like cinnamon can mint? be kind of overpowering. Yeah, and classic... And then ginger mint they have. Uh, I don't know. It seems might have to just get a set and try them all. No, there's one that's black. Do you think that's licorice like black licorice? Oh, my goodness. I don't know why anybody would want licorice toothpaste. Yeah. So they say their first thought uh, when looking at the toothpaste was that the packaging looks incredibly stylish. Very slim, sleek, metallic silver tube. Uh, that features a regal looking logo they're a sucker for aesthetics so there was no doubt that they were going to get thrown into their amazon cart so i guess you can just get them from amazon by the way the links that they have are um amazon um whatchamacallit links affiliate affiliate links, links? yeah um so they say why do they love it uh, brushing with marvis toothpaste has been nothing more has been nothing but a pure delight the ginger mint flavor uh, profile is a mild mint paired with a subtle, extremely pleasant spice of ginger. That's refreshing to wake up to. My God, I've, I'm being sold on <laughs> ginger mint. <laughs> uh, I wish I was kidding. I might actually end up throwing this into my Amazon. I'm not going to, am I going to click that? Oh, fight the urge, Marwat. You're, you're, you're all... That $36 over at Amazon is blowing the mayoral mansion's budget right out of the gate. Anyway, the major difference is they notice compared to typical toothpaste is that it doesn't foam as much and it's slightly thicker, more pure, um, more uh, paste-like texture. A little goes a long way. I've noticed that with um, non, like wildly name brand stuff or m medical, like, the stuff that's prescribed to you by a dentist, um, it is usually thicker and more paste-like. Whereas the toothpaste that you seem to buy just kind of foams up a lot. Um, and by the time you're done 
brushing a quadrant of your mouth, you look like you've got rabies and you're going to go and chase somebody out of the bathroom. Wow. Maybe. Oh, that's kind of funny. There's a TLDR, which is really hilarious because the sentient AI told me a story about how somebody didn't know in a meeting that somebody didn't know what TLDR was and then used LOL as a response once they found out what tldr was so how out of the loop were you that you know lol but you don't know tldr uh, you almost learn it one in the same you know that's pretty awesome though it was funny no harm no foul it wasn't like you know we judge people based off of their <laughs> yeah, lack internet. of internet savvy or yeah whatever. exactly so they say that Marvis toothpaste makes their brushing routine not as much, uh, not just much more bearable these days, but downright pleasant. So on you go. Then they talk about the Philips Sonicare 5100. At some point, you're basically just getting professional cleaning all the time because you've been spending so much money on various gadgets, doodads, and whatevers. Right. I guess the question is whether you're going to actually use them or they're just going to collect dust yeah <laughs> like a treadmill that gets installed and the installers say this is going to make a wonderful coat rack <laughs> don't judge me before i even do it or Next don't article. do it <laughs> <laughs> don't do it and do it because i won't be running i only run when chased and i do need to find a place for my coat so uh, the next article is over in the continuity report. Parasite director's mysterious sci-fi movie with Robert Pattison gets new 2025 release date. Apparently it's called Mickey 17, so not so mysterious. Uh, Bong Joon-ho's science fiction film Mickey 17 has a new release date as the director's first film since the critically acclaimed Parasite which won Best Picture in the 92nd Academy Awards. Mickey 17 has been highly anticipated. It's also a star-studded cast, including Robert Pattison, Stephen Yoon, Naomi Aki, Tony Collette, and Mark Ruffalo. It seems like a pretty significant cast. Due to production delays from the strikes in 2023, it was originally scheduled to be released on March 29th, 2024, before being pulled from the release calendar. What's really interesting about this is today I had a conversation with someone regarding the strikes because um, AI was one of the big uh, impactors on this strike. Basically, people were being told that they were getting paid for one gig, but their entire likeness was included in the contract that allowed a studio to basically just use their likeness in perpetuity. And it was astonishing that anybody would possibly be able to make that possible. But apparently that's how some of the contracts were actually constructed. And, and herein lies the rub with this. I think it's asinine that the studio can benefit from the contract and the change in technology enabling this extension, but it doesn't provoke an immediate uh, renegotiation of the specifics of the contract when there is some new technology. 
You know, nobody knew that the AI, that AI technology was going to come in like a wrecking ball and take over. But they benefited uh, from Maybe it. Miley Cyrus did. Miley Cyrus knew everything. She knows more than anybody knows. Matthew Roddy, or Ruddy? I think it's Roddy. Um, over at um, ScreenRant.com, put this article together. Mickey 17, the uh, the deck statement says, uh, Mickey 17, the upcoming science fiction movie helmed by Parasite director Bong Joon-ho and starring Robert Pattison now has a 2025 release date. Um, it's, uh, I haven't seen an IMAX theater movie in so long. I want to go and see an IMAX theater movie. Fans can look forward to experiencing Mickey 17 in IMAX theaters as confirmed by Warner Brothers Pictures. It's the theater that wraps around you. Um, it's very immersive. Have you ever seen like a regular movie there or only like a documentary? Um, I've seen movies and I've seen documentaries um, in IMAX theaters, but not recently, not in the last, I'd say 10 plus years. But actually probably longer than that probably 15 years and it's mainly because i find no need to go but i am still in awe of that type of experience it's basically imax theaters are basically mini las vegas spheres you know you get in it you sit down and it wraps around you like 170 degrees or something like that and it's just immersive you really enjoy that kind of a thing so um according to warner brothers pictures mickey 17 will now be released in theaters on january 31st 2025 so pushed it a little bit further but not you know mind bogglingly far into the future it's also been confirmed that the film will be available in imax theaters in mickey 17's place warner brothers has slated godzilla x kong the new uh, Empire. I, I think the X is supposed to be Godzilla and Kong, the new Empire. Or, or by, or, you know, like With a crossover or, or something. Yeah. yeah, both. Um, the next installment of the Monsterverse in a theatrical release on March 29th. I'm not too into all of that. I don't think I've seen Parasite, but I know that's a real hit, so that's interesting that it's by the person who made parasite um i think it's also along the lines of the type of reception that you get from like get out you know like somebody comes out of nowhere and is just crushing it from that point forward and so uh, when this is in a different genre you might go, wait, that's in a completely different genre, but just give them a chance and see. I bet you it's going to be spectacular uh, because uh, Parasite got amazing acclaim. So, you know, I, there's probably not that much risk. Now, if they wet the bed, then who knows? So in January 2025, Mickey 17 will stand out more as a visually visually dazzling science fiction film and one of the first big movies of the year the only other major theatrical release currently scheduled for january 2025 is paddington in peru set for january 17th i guess my bias is kind of seeping through i'm not really into paddington so <laughs> i mean what do you have against bears <laughs> 
show me on the back? No. Um, so, um, yeah, there's a bunch of people that are in it that uh, we've already mentioned. It says, while the threequel is expected to do will, well, um, its family-friendly focus will not conflict with the darker science fiction elements of Mickey 17, which tells the story of an expendable human employee named Mickey Barnes sent to help colonize an ice planet with multiple iterations of Mickey dying and new bodies needing to be generated. So this is a coming of age, coming of age, coming of age, coming of age movie in space. <laughs> That's a lot of layers. <laughs> wait, wait, let me do it again. Hold on. It's a coming of age, middle life crisis. Uh, uh, Coming to accept your demise, coming of age, m midlife crisis, meeting your demise, coming of age. Okay, I'll stop. Anyway, the new release date also ensures the, that time can be taken to ensure that Mickey 17 is a project worthy of Bong Stellar direction. Um, given the long wait since Parasite's release in 2019, it would be disappointing for the director's follow-up film to not be the same quality. Are they saying though that it hasn't even filmed? Why does it sound like it's 20 January 2025 is nine months away? Right, that's not that far in movie making. Ten months, roughly. Well, I mean nine months away. On the other side of nine months is January 2025. But maybe nobody's seen it. It's not so much that it's not in the works. Yeah, maybe it's all filmed up, but they're editing it huh all right well anyway this will be interesting there's more over here at the screen rant article so follow the link through them town um, we just kind of add our own little perspective of this um, but we don't go over the whole article with you um, go over and check it out glean something from it and then come back tomorrow and say you know what i found out about uh, this parasite directed new movie mickey 17 be great to hear from you See you in a little bit. Let's go on to the next article. Uh, this next article is in Hometown Daily. A cheese recall list shows states under Listeria warning. So quite the switch, but still a horror movie. A map shows the states with cases tied to the ongoing deadly Listeria outbreak that sparked recall alerts across the United States. This is still okay, going. Wait, was this filmed by the same director that did Parasite? Yes. Literally, <laughs> parasite. Although it's not a parasite. But um, so Maura Zurich over at Newsweek.com put this article together. Earlier this month, nearly 60 food items containing queso fresco and cojilla, cotilla, sorry, cotilla um, cheeses manufactured by Rizzo Lopez Foods of Modesto, California were recalled over fears they may have been contaminated with the potentially deadly bacteria according to a health alert issued by the Food and Drug Administration. And, well, a new map shows where the centers of uh, for disease control and prevention um, have been marking this ongoing outbreak that has been linked to 26 reported cases of illness across the U.S. At the moment, there have been 23 hospitalizations and two deaths across 11 states. That's kind of significant. Especially for a relatively new outbreak. This is amazing. Um, so they talk about Arizona, California, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Nevada, 
uh, North Carolina, Oregon, Tennessee, Texas, and Washington. This is basically the bowl of the United States. Um, pretty wild. How uh, California, uh, Colorado is well, in there like, is, hey. <laughs> it's what happens when you have major distribution channels, right? And kind of constrain supply chains. Yeah. So the list is quite expense, uh, expansive, okay? Rizzo Lopez provided the FDA with a 24-page list of hundreds of retail establishments that receive the company's dairy products. And they give another list of states and then a big block of cheese. I mean, uh, food companies. The, the recalled dairy products and goods made with them are sold under a whole host of brand names. Well, that's right, because I saw that it was things like salads that have cheese in it. I mean, it, you think about everything that cheese could appear in. So this is this. These are the states right now from the all of the West Coast, all the way across the bottom of the United States. Um, yeah, Colorado was the one like really standout because it's like further up, but it is the link. Um, I'm surprised oh, right. that that there's a gap here between you know, Louisiana and uh right how did it jump over there yeah so how yeah how did it <clears throat> it must have jumped over to Tennessee because that's the nearest one or Florida but I think well, it's remember really too with food related issues they don't always catch it because it doesn't always get reported right so maybe it is more prolific it just hasn't popped up California has been crushed though. Eight people, um, sick and, and you might think, Oh, you know, you're kind of overstating this. It isn't that much, but again, not all of them get reported. And you think that you like, for instance, I think that I got sick from one of the recalls. Um, and, uh, and then we went and had uh, dinner there again. And another person in hometown got sick. Um, and so, but it wasn't so bad that we ended up in a hospital or anything, but still it manifested. So, and, and that person had no idea that there was anything hinky, possibly hinky. So the CDC said that recent illnesses may not be reported as it usually takes three to four weeks to determine if a person is sick and is part of an outbreak. Listeriosis, the infection caused by bacteria, um, the listeriomonocytogenes, um, can cause numerous symptoms like fever, muscle aches, headaches, stiff neck, confusion, loss of balance, convulsions. That's on the far side. Uh, but normally you have gastro and uh, gastro gastro. Gastrointestinal gastroenteritis or gastrointestinal issues. Issues, gastrointestinal issues. Kind of saying gastro too much. Anyway, it, it, depending on if you are are pregnant or if you're immunocompromised, it can be dramatically worse. So if you feel that you have eaten some of this cheese, go and look. Uh, find out if you've got if you've imbibed any of this stuff, and if you have, and you're not feeling well, go see a doctor. Um, and get checked now they can give you certain things but it's really just easing your suffering for a while until your body expels the bacteria 
Okay, let's keep going though. Wow. We have been talking about that for a little while now. Um, technology today is where the next article is. Scientists develop simple and cost-effective early diabetes test. I thought this one was really interesting. Um, diabetes is a massive problem in the United States, so much so that people are um, taking Wigovi and other weight loss and diabetes-related medications to try and stem the tide um, of diabetes acquisition because you can get uh, type 2 diabetes simply by gaining too much weight, eating too many sweets. Your body kind of goes into shock, I guess. Um, and so it doesn't have the ability to deal with it anymore. And so you end up having to get, take other medications and whatnot. Uh, but you can right, take and it's something. a lot easier to prevent it than to try to treat it. Yeah. Once you're, once you are flagged as having diabetes, it's very tough to pull yourself away from it for some reason. Um, and it's really weird because like you can have a high, blood sugar uh, for a sustained period of time and it's treated as basically your borderline diabetic like um, pre-diabetes yeah yeah but every it's depending on where you go they basically the doctors basically say oh no if you're pre-diabetes then you're diabetes um but your treatment is different you don't actually have to take anything if you're pre-diabetes you just have to stop being a dumbass but Stop Some eating people, Cheetos or whatever. <laughs> yeah, sugar. Um, carbs, lose weight. Work out, go for walks. Um, but the problem there is not everybody's genetics are aligned with that a lower number um, easily. You have to work a whole lot harder. So we're basically in the United States chronically overweight, obese, and we're taking medication. Well, diabetes frequently goes unnoticed until it has caused organ or nerve damage, partly because early stage diagnosis is challenging and time consuming. So some researchers have discovered a way to do a simple cost-effective early diabetes test it's from Roar, Roar University Bochum. Um, and uh, the article is over at SciTechDaily.com. They don't have a person, by the way. It's just from the university. It's almost like a press release. An international team of researchers headed by professor, associate professor, Dr. Uh, Johan Dietrich from the Department of Medicine. And I don't know if that's I or one. One, maybe? Of Rohr University, Bochum at St. Joseph Hospital in Bochum, Germany. Um, has shown that a mathematical calculation based on just two values taken from a blood sample enables the reliable and inexpensive diagnosis of diabetes at an early stage. The researchers recently published their findings in the Journal of Diabetes. Um, together yeah, I would with have this... expected them to publish it in like the Journal of... Um... Sugar. Thank you. Or something else. <laughs> the Journal of... It's yeah, very specific. If it's the Journal flavor. of Diabetes. Yeah, they... Um, the, the Journal of uh, Automotive uh, <laughs> Design. I don't know. So it's partly due to the fact that this is not easy to detect at an early stage. Diabetes sets in gradually and our diagnostic options are not sensitive enough to detect it. Uh, moreover, there aren't specific enough, meaning that false positives can occur. Um, 
And what's really interesting is when I first heard this article, uh, heard about the article and I, I read just a little bit of that snippet, they say simple and cost effective. And whenever I hear that, I go, the fidelity is going to be low. It's going to be an either on or off switch, but they actually draw attention to that. And they say, moreover, they aren't specific enough, meaning that false positives can also occur. So they are very aware. They're acutely aware of it, that diabetes is this gradual thing and the options aren't sensitive enough. So they've come up with a more sensitive way. The method called spina carb is based on mathematical modeling. All that's required is a simple blood sample, which is taken in the morning before the patients have their breakfast, which is actually pretty typical. Um, you want to fast before you get um, a blood sugar test, right. diabetes test. You don't want to eat a sugar cookie or something right before that. Yeah, you just start pounding down chocolate and then you go in. That's what I do. I, I eat Oreos before I go in to get my teeth cleaned too. That, yeah. I'm sure the dentist appreciates that. Uh, I've described it as job security for them. So um, they, they block out two sessions instead of one. And yeah. Do they hand you Marvis uh, toothpaste? Yeah, that the licorice flavor one, because they know that I really don't like licorice. I mean, I like red vines, but I don't like black licorice. I don't know. There's something about it. What is the stuff? What is, what is black licorice? The um, anise. Anise. Yeah. Anise is like. Um, we enter these values into an equation that describes the body's control loop for sugar metabolism. Break it down according to a certain variable, explains Johannes Dietrich. Um, the result is so-called static disposition index or spina di um, or D. I don't know. So a weird name, but anyway. Um, so it's the insulin value and the glucose value. Those are the two measures. Uh, in the computer simulations, the research team proved that the new parameter confirms the theory of dynamical compensation, which predicts that insulin resistance in people with metabolic syndrome is compensated for by the pancreatic beta cells increasing their activity. A subsequent study of the three groups of volunteers in the US, Germany, and India supported this assumption. So I would love to do this. Um, I, I um, regularly get blood work done because I'm really interested in um, augmenting or minimizing food consumption and utilizing supplements, exercise, getting the data to find out, do you really need to eat X number of calories or can you augment it with um, uh, supplements? Um, but one of the things that has always been eluding, uh, that, you know, my doctor and I is what is truly affecting my blood glucose level, because it's been static regardless of what I'm doing. It's the same damn number. Um, and the only way it actually wavers and even then it doesn't reduce dramatically is me nixing all sugar, like all sugar. And even then it's not wildly low. It doesn't change that much. So I would really like to know what this pumps out as a result. So if you're curious about this, the paper is in the research um, paper is in the journal of diabetes, but it's titled a, Re a novel, simple disposition index 
from fasting insulin and glucose concentration as a robust measure of car carbohydrate homeostasis by Johan et al. Uh, sorry, Johan uh, Dietrich et al. There are about eight people that are involved in this. Um, well, I was going to say that definitely distinguishes between the other non-Johans. <laughs> Excuse me, who is et? Um, so it, I think that it's really fascinating, but a simple mathematical formula, I'm really curious about what this is because it's almost impossible to commercialize this. So I'm really wondering like what here, what all is actually involved in this? Um, it's almost yeah. something too good that, to be true almost. Right. Because it's like, yeah. okay, what is a company going to do with this? Yeah. This is so simple. Um, it's almost indefensible in, in terms of not giving it to everybody. Um, but I guess if the calculation shows out, I, uh, it's a business model. Okay, let's just keep going. Uh, I'm getting a little absurd about that uh, because I just don't know enough. It's as simple as taking two numbers from a blood sample and throwing it into a calculator. <laughs> right, which seems like there's going to be an app or something for it, right? Uh, but you still you have go. to get the blood drawn. Yeah, that's true. So the next article is over in hometown daily, a server in Michigan who got part of a $10,000 tip from a morning customer says that she was fired by the restaurant just days later. Um, there, this is a complex issue because the person I know about, I, I heard about this and I, and I know that the claim is that they were fired for other reasons is what the manager says, but I'm sorry. What are the other reasons? Um, it just seems like there's a little bit of scumbaggery here. Um, so here's what happened. A grieving diner who was honoring their friend who um, met their demise um, donated a 10,000 or left a $10,000 tip with the statement to uh, divide it up amongst the um, servers. But in fact, the, that was in the news when that was, uh, I don't know if it made hometown, but I did see that. It, it was in hometown um, over several days. Um, I don't think that we talked about it, but I'm not sure. Um, but what was interesting about it was that it was all great goodwill, right? The anonymous diner, uh, gave a $10,000 tip on a $32 meal in uh, to a cafe in uh, Michigan. Eight days later, the employee who... Um, did I say the title of this thing? I don't know. Mm, let me, I'm not sure, but let, you haven't moved over to the article yet. Yeah, let me reiterate this. So a server in Michigan who got part of a $10,000 tip from a morning customer says she was fired by the restaurant just days later. Eight days to be specific. So the diner left a $10,000 tip. They were going to split it across everybody, all of the servers, except that the um, kitchen crew found out about it and said that they wanted some of it. Right. So let's right, go. But I'm still like, how does that translate into somebody getting fired? 
Right. So here's how this translates into somebody getting fired. Um, the, uh, the Mason jar cafe in Benton Harbor, uh, Western Michigan, who, who is now suffering from the Streisand effect for basically douchebaggery. Um, the, uh, response basically was they were being fired because a dispute amongst the staff who got some of the money, um, was brought to the attention of the owner of the place. And she wouldn't cough up the names of the people from the kitchen crew who were complaining about not getting a piece of that action. And so eight days later, doink, right? Splitting the tip, however, led to a conflict among the cafe's workers. Jennifer McManus, an attorney for server Lindsay Huff, um, who was the member of the staff the diner gave the tip to, uh, told the Guardian that kitchen staff also wanted to uh, a share of the tip and became upset. Huff also goes by the name Boyd. So Lindsay Huff is Boyd. Uh, McManus said that when Huff told the cafe's managers that the kitchen staff were annoyed with how the tip had been distributed, they asked her to name the workers, which I think is douchebaggery. Um, after Huff refused, the cafe fired her, but the owner says that they were fired for other reasons. Really? In this particular situation, I think that you would probably say to Huff, Hey, we need to disclose why you were fired. Um, and that it wasn't for, uh, you not telling us who was pissed off. Um, so Mason jar co-owner, uh, Jamie cousins confirmed to local TV channel eight news that the employee had been fired and that it was an unrelated issue to the tip. Um, and purely a business decision. All right. That seems kind of weird. So in the fallout cousins and her husband, uh, and cousins is the co-owner. So cousins and her husband, Abel Martinez also posted a Facebook status about the termination, which was flooded with comments about the events, which many of which were negative. And then they deleted the, uh, a huff has since deleted her Facebook post about the dismissal because McManus apparently said, if you don't, you're going to end up in a lawsuit. That was the cafe. McManus is the, uh, said that members of the cafe's management called Huff and told her that the Mason jar would file a lawsuit against her. If she didn't remove the post, you should be able, and you do, you are, that actually violates um, uh, what is it called? The uh, National Labor um, Board uh, Relations Board (NLRB), um, because you're basically responding to their firing with a lawsuit. But I have the ability to talk about my termination. Oh yeah, I mean it's kind of like an EEO issue. I don't know that she was a union worker or whatever, but. Um... Yeah, it's definitely like it has a chilling effect, right? Because it's right. like, hey, don't talk about what actually happened here. Right. If this was actually documented in an email or something like that, that right there is a lawsuit on top of the, the termination. I don't think it was. I think they called her, which that's yeah, a whole other additional scumbag. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know how you want to hide something? You say, call me. You know what, you little scumbag, I'm going to record what you say, just like I'm, I'm recording this show. You know, if, if, 
if you want to say something to me, then you get on the air and you say something to me. Um, I mean, obviously you can post it in chat too, but this is the kind of respectful. (laughs) (laughs) I'll delete it. If it's it's (laughs) offensive, I mean, to a, to a degree, but I, I, I think, you know, maybe this is, there's actually some cause of action between them because of whatever, right. They, they were terminated with cause or whatever. But a ten thousand. For example, they could have stolen. I'm just making something up. I'm not saying the person did it, but they could have stolen money from the cafe or something. The timing, though, looks really wonky because, (laughs) right, the massive tip. Yeah. Then she's reporting that other people are complaining about it, and then she gets fired. If anything else, the other workers should be the ones who get fired. I'm not saying that warrants it, but yeah. How about nobody gets fired if somebody's complaining about not getting a tip? Be a better manager for crying out loud. Hey, you know what? That tip was earmarked for servers, not for the kitchen crew. If the servers, if the group of servers want to sit there and take their $10,000 tip, which let's say there were five servers, everybody would get $2,000. Then you talk about the kitchen crew. It gets diluted to a th- diluted to $1,000. I mean, I can see why they didn't want to share it. It's not being rude. It's like you're not going to have any bonus left or tip left at the end of this. Yeah. And and it's a tip. So you still have to declare it and you still have to pay taxes on it. And at that level, I mean, you let's say you get 2000, you're going to have to pay 35% of that as a tip uh, as as, a, as taxes. And in the real pisser is <laughs> if the 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 person who donated ten or get left the ten thousand dollar tip is listening to all of this they're going to be sitting there going oh my god my act of in honor of my friend who died is being used as leverage to fire somebody and a bunch of people are bitching about it i mean you're really inconsiderate the kitchen crew is inconsiderate and greedy it was earmarked for the service uh for the um uh, wait staff for the, the servers and should have gone to the servers. That's what the. So what's the takeaway here? If you're leaving a ridiculously large tip, give it directly to one person and tell them not to say a damn thing to anybody. Exactly. Or if you really want to give tips to a lot of people, you give them directly to all of those people. You don't have somebody responsible to share it with other people. Hell, um, but the other point, takeaway is don't give a large tip, which is the wrong takeaway. Yeah, really. Yeah, that is the wrong. <laughs> yeah. But that seems like what people are going to read this as. Like, well, I'm not getting involved in this kind of controversy. Yeah, it, that that's what really sucks is we can't have nice things because there are people that want to take a bigger bite of an apple. That was never intended for them. It was intended for somebody else entirely. But whatever. All right. Um, yeah, let's go on to the next article. Uh, the next article is over in hometown daily. These next two are actually tied together, but um, subtly different. Uh, hometown daily is where this one is housed. The music labels are still suing the internet companies. That's a warning for the AI industry. The next three are actually kind of tied together. Big AI companies like OpenAI face lawsuits from content owners such as the New York Times. Cox Communications won an appeal to overturn a $1 billion verdict 
uh, for failing to curb piracy. The current legal battles over intellectual property and generative AI could last for decades. This article is uh, over at Business Insider. Peter Kafka is the author. Um, they have a picture of a robot with a gavel. I think that's kind of funny. Yeah, that's kind of neat. <laughs> so this almost looks like a composite article uh, when you look at it. Uh, but they basically start out saying uh, the AI boom has been accompanied by AI lawsuits filed by content owners like the New York Times against big AI companies like OpenAI. Um, led a lot of people to think about the parallels between the current moment, uh, the current moment in the Napster era, which if you haven't, I, I twenty you know years worth of people. What the Napster era is. Um... The character from Italian Job that insists on being called Napster. <laughs> <laughs> That's this is the saddest part of this is um, no, I can't even say it out loud. Anyway, um, it's too real to say it out loud. <sighs> All right. So if you're thinking about what kind of thing uh, about that kind of thing right now, here's a story to chew on via Reuters. Um, and they talk about the $1 billion verdict that was leveraged against a, an internet service provider, which actually has safe Harbor and can only do certain actions. They can't just arbitrarily kick people off, um, for perceived slights against some intellectual property holder. Um, but we'll get to that. So in the present tense. A case about digital piracy, something the tech and media companies spent a lot of time debating back in the 2000s and early 2010s. Um, that was when we had lawsuits like Metallica v. Napster or MGM uh, v. Grokster or Arista v. Lime Group, which was um, part of the uh, music distribution um, software, LimeWire, that allowed for sharing of um, MP3s and such. When Congress proposed laws like PIPA and SOPA, um, I actually used to give a talk about this um, because there's a lot of these um, like uh, digital freedom fighters who think that piracy doesn't really harm anybody because nobody's losing anything because the distribution of digital media is essentially uh, uh, resource free and doesn't prevent anyone from getting you're not taking it away from somebody to give it to somebody else so it's not really theft but for every two dollar song you distribute that's two dollars taken off of somebody else's table thus them not having that two dollars to buy food or pay their mortgage or buy clothes they did the right. work and it's multiples right yeah. If, yeah. if if you send it to multiple people that might have purchased it yeah, and millions of people are downloading uh, movies, music, uh, musics, movies, music, books, um, even photographs, pretty much anything that might have intellectual property or appreciation by a group of people um, where money should be exchanging hands or a barter system in place where if you like, then you pay or or you give or you do or whatever. But it's kind for kind. Um, and, and for the most part, I agree that digital media is ultimately uh, infinitely distributable. But the ethics and the moral uh, morals of this is that you don't take 
for free something that you enjoy, something that you want, you compensate the people, the creators, right? And if um, there's something that has a price tag on it, right? If you're getting it for free, you're not compensating somebody, right? Even if it's a a digital product, right? It doesn't have to be tangible, right? And there's certain use cases where I say, look, you should be able to sit there and discuss the music. You should be able to sit there and discuss the movie. Um, or watch the movie on your own device or whatever. You're not sending it to somebody else. Right. Like if you already own it. Yep. So it says, turns out things are not so settled. The music labels are still arguing successfully, apparently, that broadband companies can be held liable for bad behavior enabled by their broadband, all of which is a reminder that the current legal fights about intellectual property and generative AI could last a very, very long time. Because a lot of people are now arguing that everything that generative AI is outputting is a uh, an approximate use of everybody else's artwork and you just have to find the person that's actually being victimized by the ai um, so they say what that means is another question will the overhang of liability prevent the open ais of the world from moving as fast as they'd like or is it a signal to move fast break things not worry about it and when the legal reckoning does happen it be too late you'll have your millions or billions and so on so i thought this was an interesting perspective of this but you'll have to if you want to read more about this follow the link um and um, go check it out over at hometown so there's only a little bit on hometown you'll have to follow the link and it'll take you over to business insider but then you should go over to this next article and let me do a transition real quick um because this next article is about the fact that that $1 billion finding in another courtroom is blocked. So courts block a $1 billion copyright ruling that punished ISP for its users piracy. A federal appeals court today overturned a $1 billion piracy verdict that a jury handed down against a cable internet service provider Cox communications in 2019. Judges rejected Sony's claim that Cox profited directly from copyright infringement committed by users of Cox's cable broadcast network. It's much like that Frontier one, I think. Uh, was it yes, Frontier? Yes, exactly. It was Frontier. Yeah, where they were sitting there saying that Frontier benefits by being cavalier about its uh, defending of intellectual property. And that the... the um, IP holders, the intellectual property rights holders are going after frontier communications, um, to identify. Sorry, I was trying to find the frontier litigation, but there's a lot of other litigation <laughs> frontiers. So never mind. <laughs> <laughs> never mind. So yeah, I mean, there's all of this, uh, litigation, uh, regarding intellectual property. Um, but the problem is just because an ISP allows somebody to violate copyright, they're not the defenders of the copyright. They're just the vehicle by which they're giving somebody access to the internet. They should not be policing what people do on their service. It's supposed to be unfettered access. Um, 
And I think it's really freaking creepy that they know about a lot of stuff already. I mean, they know what websites you go to before anybody else does because you use their DNS. And if you use Google's DNS, then you're part of the data pool that's being mined for marketing anyways. So enjoy and that. And for AI training. And AI training, yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, they're going to love my My Little Pony Rainbow Adventure uh, websites. So, yeah, right out of the gate, you know, there's a ruling. It goes straight into an appeals court. The appeals court actually sees the light and says no. Um, so judges rejected Sony's claim that uh, Cox profited directly from the copyright infringement. And I agree. I don't even know how this could have been handed down by a jury. One billion dollars. There had to have been misrepresentation. It just doesn't make any sense. Right. I, I feel like there's more to it. So the, um, <laughs> the like articles the over at Ars Technica has somebody uh, using a laptop and they've got an old CD in their mouth and have a uh, pirate hat and an eye patch. Um, John Brodkin. It might be John Brodkin. I don't know. No, it's a Getty image. Anyway, um, quote, Cox did not profit from its subscribers acts of infringement judges rule and the article again over at arstechnica.com um, says appeals court judges didn't let Cox off the hook entirely, but they vacated the damages award and ordered a new damages trial, which will presumably result in a significantly smaller amount to be paid to Sony and other copyright holders. Universal and Warner are also plaintiffs in the case, but this if it goes back down for another damages trial, what is stopping them from? It could be one dollar. What is stopping oh. them from appealing it again um, to an ever higher court? Because the court of appeals is going to, at that time, go. Wait, we've we've reviewed this before. We think that there should be some damages, but we can't say what that damages are. We're going to remand it back to the lower court or we're going to kick it up to another court. So this is like going up to a Supreme court type of hearing. Why? Because Cox is providing internet access. They're not defending the world from, uh, illegal activity. Um, just like the, the city isn't held responsible because they allowed somebody to steal a car and use the roads. No, you go after the people who are committing the crime. That's it. Well, I think this is interesting. The appellate judges talked about that no reasonable jury could find that Cox received a direct financial benefit from its subscribers' infringement of plaintiff's copyrights. Yeah. So, I mean, they're expecting it to come back maybe with like a $1 um, uh, damages, right? I guess it's under the, the uh, illegal prerequisite for vicarious liability. Um, yeah, it's going to drop back down and then maybe that jury is going to get a jury instruction that says you cannot award any financial compensation if you don't find that they directly, somebody had to have been very charismatic in that other trial, uh, in the other jury, because the idea if the statement was made if the instruction was you cannot award money 
unless Cox was seen as directly benefiting, somebody had to. And you to have, know the instruction had to have said something to that effect, right? Right. Like, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. I would love to be a person who's allowed to sit inside a jury room and just like cogitate on the process of like 12 angry men, you know, that it's just, I would love to be in that room, just discuss learning for myself, the, the, uh, sociological forces at play there. I mean, it would be amazing. Um, but I'm sure that they don't allow that kind of stuff ever. So in today's court, uh, fourth circuit ruling appeals court judges wrote that Sony failed as a matter of law to prove that Cox profits directly from its subscriber copyright infringement. And no, they, they don't, you know, imagine that, oh, uh, the ISP gets $25 for every album that is uh, distributed illegally, uh, to 1000 people. Come on, don't be dumb. So the article goes into greater detail, but they say at the very end of this, that Cox is still liable, but for what? Well, right. They might come out with almost no damages in the second damages trial, but because they're not redoing whether Cox was responsible, right? They're doing how much Cox should pay. Yeah. So they have a quote in here where the the author writes at, underneath it the jury had pl- the jury had plenty of leeway to come up with a number in other words. So the quote that they're responding to is although the vicarious and contributory infringement claims were predicated on the same conduct and the maximum damages for each is identical The statutory range is wide and the jury's choice within it is highly discretionary and may have been influenced by the vicarious infringement verdict. So, Oh, so I think they're saying like they misapplied, right? right. Like they're confusing two things. Just because there was vicarious infringement doesn't mean that they should get the full amount for all of the transgressions. Um, which amounted to a billion dollars considering they may have had a number related to 150,000 per instance and they dropped. Right. Well, that can add up real fast given the number of users, right? Exactly. Yeah. Depending on what the calculation was. Yeah. So it's interesting, but a billion dollars, I mean, a thousand instances and you're at a billion dollars. Yeah. They say it was a global figure for all infringements in the case. I think they just rounded up to a billion dollars. Yeah. I think you're right though. I think this could go up higher because this has a potential impact right on all ISPs. Yeah. I mean, it invalidates the, the, uh, safe Harbor provisions for ISPs. Exactly. Uh, which kind of brought me to the next thing, which was AI. And uh, thought this was really interesting. A billion dollars for some copyright infringement, but what about stuff that can't get a copyright? But maybe if it could, it apparently is going to destroy the creative industries. This article's over in Hometown Daily, that just the snippet. It's actually um, from, I think, it, yeah, Tech Dirt. So. 
Generative AI, the article is titled How Allowing Copyright on AI-Generated Works Could Destroy Creative Industries. And the little snippet that is provided is Generative AI continues to be the hot topic in the digital world and beyond. A previous blog post noted that this has led to people finally asking the important question whether copyright is fit for the digital world. As far as AI is concerned, there are two sides to the question. The first is whether generative AI systems can be trained on copyrighted materials without the need for licensing. I don't think so. Um, that is naturally dominated uh, discussions because many see an opportunity to impose what is effectively a copyright tax on generative AI. The other is whether the output of generative AI systems can get a copyright. Um, and that has already been proven to be extremely limited. Um, most generative AI works cannot receive a copyright. Right, um, but we did see something interesting. I think it was the Grammy Awards. Now that wasn't whether it could be copyrighted, but it was it could be eligible for award. I think it was Grammys. Right. And it was eligible because if it's partially generated by AI but substantively modified by a human, um, so as to um appear that most of it is human manipulated, then you would basically, um, it would survive basically the inquiry of, should this get a copyright? Well, given the current interest in generative AI, it's no surprise that there's lots of pundits out there pontificating on what it all means. Uh, and this, the person, um, Glenn Moody over at techdirt.com put this article together and they say they find Christopher Penn's thoughts on the subject to be consistently insightful and worth reading, unlike those of many other commentators. I love the little stab. You know, this person is interesting, but that person is a piece of shit and doesn't deserve your... Yeah, that's kind of like, wait a second. <laughs> Pretty neat, right? So even better, his newsletter and blog are free um, because, you know, free puts food on the table. Um, his most recent newsletter will be of particular interest to walled culture readers and has a bold statement concerning AI and copyright. I think the quote is because there are no quote marks, but it's inset and italicized. It has almost everything of a APA, but <laughs> anyway, we should unequivocally ensure machine made content can never be protected under intellectual property laws or else we're going to destroy the entire creative economy. It's very, wow. very fud. It's a little over the top. <laughs> yeah. The whole world is going to die. Um, his newsletter includes a, a short harmonized tune generated using AI. Penn points out that it is trivially, trivially easy to automate the process of varying that tune and its harmony using AI in a way that scales to billions of harmonized tunes covering a large portion, proportion of all possible songs. And so I understand where they're coming from with this because I've fallen victim to this. Um, essentially, that little statement there in this article implies that if anybody does this then every trivially modified tone will be copyrighted and thus nobody could take a sample and create a, a subsequent work right 
because it uses yeah, the notation. I suppose that is true. Yeah. So it's a slippery freaking slope. But here's the deal. The only thing that can be copyrighted should be the entire embodiment. Not a little snippet, not three seconds of the song is. Uh, so the ideology in, in intellectual property, music, idea, uh, intellectual property is there is basically a rolling segment of audio. And if anything transgresses that rolling segment, it can be flagged as a violation of the copyright. So if you take three seconds out of a song and you loop it and turn it into a different song, you're still violating where you took that little snippet from. I don't agree with that. I think that it should be 51% of the song or more. If you use 51% of the song or more, then yes, you're violating the copyright, but not three seconds. But I used to actually play music and talk about it and it would get flagged. I had a, I had a, I would play, um, demos inside this stream to show people the demo and the music in the demo would get flagged. Not the demo, the music in the demo, but the demos freely distributable, but I would get flagged. Um, so I understand what they're saying here. If my billion songs are now copyrighted, then every musician who composes a song from today to forward has to check that their composition isn't in my catalog of a billion variations. I completely agree. That's exactly what I was saying. Cause I haven't read any of this but I know all about this and I anticipate this kind of thing. Um, unfortunately I've actually fallen victim to this because I've paid for years to use commercial license. The problem was that it wasn't a synchro license that you have to clear with every single hand that was involved in the creation of that musical work. You have to get written permission to use it. And there are some songs that have 28 people. And those same 28 people bitch that they didn't make enough money in distribution. Well, yeah, because if your song is being distributed and 28 people get a piece of the action and there's only 12 cents that's being distributed across 28 people, then yeah, you're not going to get that much money. So if an AI can make a song for me that I actually like, and I am the impetus for its creation, then I think that I should be able to use that tool to get a copyright. But again, the copyright is the entire embodiment of it, not some rolling segment of ephemera within it. Well, so, of course, what have we seen in the copyright suits involving music, right? They've been very small portions. And, and it's not even just portions they speed up or slow down somebody else's you're right. creation. You're right. So I think and they've had ridiculous things like having people sing in court. <laughs> yeah. Play guitar and shit like that. Yeah. It's amazing. So moreover, allowing copyright in this way would result in a computing arms race with basically everybody doing everything that they possibly can because the copyright is already implied. The moment you create something, the embodiment is already protected. You don't have to go to the uh, copyright office and register it. It emboldens that particular protection, but it doesn't 
prevent you from the protection of copyright. That embodiment is copyrighted. But I think, again, we have it wrongheaded and the people with the money are making the rules, not the people who should be fighting for the ability to be competitive and be able to create subordinate creative works off of other people's creative works because we all share in that inspiration. A person who created a song didn't create a song in a vacuum. They shared an experience with the world somewhere and then created this song. At some point, there has to be a limit on what is allowed to be protected. And, you know, one second of music or three seconds of music shouldn't be that threshold. It should be sub substantially more. Um, so while I think that the beginning of this is FUD, it's not going to destroy the entire creative economy. I think controls can be put in place so that no, the only thing that can be copyrighted is your entire work. Or somewhere in between, but not this infinite fidelity level. So this chimes with something that they've argued before, that generative AI could help make the human-generated art more valuable. That is actually something that I say regularly um, because the value of human creativity will be further enhanced if companies are unable to claim copyright in AI-generated works. I don't think that that's the reason. I think it's because people value people and not AI as much. And anybody will, or everybody at some point will come across AI work that they appreciate and they may say, oh, it's created by a bot. I don't really care for it. But if it's created by a human, they appreciate it more and they'll pay more for it because it is human generated. Showing the authenticity. Right, but if they think it's human, they might pay more. But if you say that it's human made, but it's AI, then it's fraud. Oh, absolutely. I just mean, for instance, let's say it's unspecified. Let's right. say it's allowable. Right. If it's a bot, but they like the sound of it, they're going to go, this is great. But the second they find out it was a bot, they're going to go, well, this isn't any good. Yeah, I don't want it. Yeah, I mean, it, but it should be a person's choice. And a person who is artistic, but not skilled in art, they know what they like and they can use syntax to create something. And, and But it's a tool. It's just like a camera body. The camera body is a tool and the person operating the camera is the one that creates the work of art. AI is a tool and the person who is telling it and directing it and then manipulating it in post or combining multiples of the uh, iterations of the, uh, let's say mid journey outputted creations. They're the artist. The tool, though, is essentially AI. Yeah. So, I mean, I buy into this, but I buy into it to a point. Um, I think it's dangerous to just allow, in our current iteration of copyright law, infinite range in what can't be sampled, um, making it illegal to create a subordinate work. We're supposed to be stimulating creativity and creating competition, making all of society better in the process. But all of our laws are punitive. It doesn't really enable anything. All right, enough for that. Let's keep on going. We have, uh, did I throw that? Yeah, okay. So we've got one more article. 
and then we'll call it a night. Um, this is the tiniest apartment in Manhattan with no bedroom for $1,200 a month. Uh, the little snippet says the internet has been left in an uproar. Manhattan's tiniest apartment was put up for rent for $1,200 a month. Let's take a look at it. It's over at newsweek.com. Melissa Fleur Afshar is the author. And um, they say, how is this legal? One viewer commented in uh, what amounts to a video, I guess, about um, a, a micro apartment. This has to be the tiniest apartment in Manhattan. Labak um, shared in a post, audiences were given full tour of the narrow one bed that lacks a kitchen, a bathroom, or even much space to move around in. It's only saving grace is the small closet that resides in a corner near its front door. Um, I don't know if they're actually going to have any pictures in here. Look at that. There's no pictures or anything. Well, that's not good. Huh. Hold on. I don't know. Let me see if I can locate them. Yeah, okay. A pained window leads out to a fire escape, a typical fixture of many New York apartments. Labak demonstrated that he can almost touch both sides of the minuscule apartment. I, there are no pictures on this post, huh? There are not. So since it's been shared uh, to social media platform, to the social media platform, oh, it's on Instagram. Um, to date, more than 6.5 million Instagrammers have viewed the post. The comments section can prove uh, colorful as Labak expected, to say the least. 500 bucks would already be overpriced. Who would pay $1,200 for half a room? Um, let me see. Well, we did see um, even more ridiculous rent arrangements, right? Where we saw like a balcony or Oh, so this stairwell. is it right here. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. There's no bathroom, I mean, it no almost kitchen. looks like a hallway. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like a hallway to a fire escape. That's basically what it is, too. Uh, but like, it has a sprinkler system. Would it even fit a bed in the hole? No. Yeah, all the way at the end. Yeah, like a single. The bathroom is actually in the hallway. You have to go all the way down. This is kind of like the one that we talked about. Mm -hmm. The shared bathroom. Um, and there's the shower. So yeah, you're, you're, that person's bathroom is way over here in the hallway. <laughs> wow. It's time to live somewhere else. Yeah, I'd be done with that. I, there's no way that I would want to live in that city if that's where I was going to end up. And 1200 bucks is a lot of money. But I guess... Well, that's exactly it, right? You can't pay that if you're like a minimum wage worker. Yep. That's insane. All right. Well, there wasn't much to this um, uh, article, but honestly, there is a link that will connect you. It's almost like a little... Um, what is it? What do they call those? Russian nesting doll kind of a thing. Follow the link from the show notes over to Omtown. Click on visit the source. You'll get taken to Newsweek. Scroll down. Click on shared to the social media platform, which is going to link you to Instagram. And that's where you'll find the video because it's not embedded in the article. 
Um, but there you have it. Okay, folks, that's it for today. We get back into our party bus and drive all the way back down Main Street. And then there's the front page, but I'm not going to click on anything because I've been spooked too many times by the risky click of the front page while I'm streaming. So, oh, we can do it. Okay, well, let's see. Oh, God. No, just kidding. <laughs> okay, I was, what did I miss? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so um, one of our shows, Wanted, and the other show is Technology Today. Uh, although we're, uh, the it, the filter is throwing things into both of them because they are relevant to both um, shows. One is a deeper dive into the tech, and one is uh, from the context of the gadgetry therein, not the tech. So um, that's it for today. I am Marwat. That is hometown.com. And up there is the sentient AI that actually kept me out of trouble tonight. So thank you very much. I try. Uh, good night, hometown citizens. We will see you tomorrow at approximately 8 p.m. Eastern for another episode of um, Hometown Daily. Good night, everybody.